Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. A group of employees sued NYU for allegedly mismanaging their retirement fund to the tune of $350 million. The judge during trial seemed to think the school wasn't up to the task of handling the big investment portfolio, but it turns out NYU prevailed anyway. Our senior benefits reporter, Emily Brill, will come on the show to talk us through what happened and what it means for other universities facing similar suits. And don't miss the end of the show when we talk about an attorney who said his client is a moron and Chief Justice Roberts weighing in on the proper way to pronounce a word we've said quite a bit on this very show. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, I feel like another busy week of stuff to talk about. A lot sure. of stuff. Um, and I I would be remiss if I didn't start right here. You know, I wear a lot of hats here at this company. I write about trade. Sure. Do a little bit of editing, do the podcast. I also consider myself the uh, dank meme lord emeritus since, I think since that that's John true. Randall's left Yeah, us. that's right. right yeah, right. he's gone on to something called well, the Wall Street Journal. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, anyway... Uh, my interest was therefore piqued uh, yesterday during a hearing of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. They were having a, a very enthralling hearing about the role of social media in like uh, political uh, and election season mis- like misinformation campaigns. And it began uh, with Senator Richard Burr, the Republican from North Carolina, uh, giving a very creative entry point into his, uh, his view on this, uh, on this matter. Some feel that we as society... Um, are sitting in a burning room, calmly drinking a cup of coffee, telling ourselves this is fine. That's not fine, and that's not the case. We should no longer be uh, talking about if the Russians attempted to interfere with American society. They've been doing it since the days of the Soviet Union, and they're still doing it today. (laughs) Guys. Okay, content aside of like, I mean, we're talking about Russian meddling, that's very serious, but... Hearing him read that so seriously yeah, I mean, if is you, great. If, if you're somehow more out of the loop than Senator Burr, he's describing the famous meme of the cartoon dog who sits right. in the room on fire drinking coffee saying this is fine. What I like about it is not only that he's become aware or someone on his staff clearly thought it would be fun to color up his sure. yeah. his remarks at this hearing with this talking about this meme stuff, but that he also explains the joke of the meme. <laughs> he does. Because he says just like, actually it's not fine. And that's not the case. <laughs> I also wonder I also wonder how it's many so great. I, I wonder how many drafts they might have gone through. There's there a lot, are a lot of other, a lot lot of of memes. other memes out like, there. S- some people say we are an excited Japanese boy who sees something flying through the air and thinks it's a different thing. That's not the case. We, the American people, are walking through a city with our girlfriend, <laughs> Russian interference in the election, and we get distracted by other things. Call them politics. Who knows? <laughs> who are we if not a, uh, a gorilla at a Cincinnati zoo who was gunned down by authorities and we live on in the memories of the populace? R.I.P. Anyway. Yes, uh, I can't uh, wait to hear to all the violate, of these yeah. peppered into congressional like. I know. Statements. I mean, I, I you know, you got to take whatever pleasure you can in the uh, in the mundanity of the news these days. That's so true. yeah, that that I got a lot of got a lot of joy out of that. Well, I think we have some other news we want to talk about that is not mundane. We'll yeah. move on to some other stuff. Yeah, Bill, you pretty, have a big one you want to talk about up first. Pretty. Um, so we've talked a lot on the show about how you know we did the glass ceiling report a few months ago of and how. It's really easy to put things down on paper about how you're going to fix diversity problems at law firms. Yeah. But it's a lot harder to actually it's a lot harder to actually find real lasting solutions. And I think sort of nothing illustrates this better than than the story that that we had last week out of out of Shook Hardy and Bacon. Um so I mentioned that the glass ceiling report in that we ranked Shook for its size as one of the very best firms in the country for for women attorneys. Um it outstrips the average firm in 
pretty much every metric, including the really important stuff like how many equity partners are women at the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, the firm's managing partner is a woman, Madeline McDonough. Um, we spoke to her at length last year um, when she said um, that firms have, quote, struggled to reinvent their compensation, evaluation, and development systems to interrupt implicit bias. Um, so it... All right. Well, this all sounds great, Bill. And I'm always looking for the bright stories that we're making progress. But <laughs> you've set us up that there's something bad. That I know happened. enough right. about storytelling conventions. <laughs> yeah. I, I sense yeah, a turn. Can't all be good. And 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 after all of that stuff, it yeah. was it was shook that made headlines last week over a male litigator um, comparing pregnancy to an illness um, and essentially saying that a, an opposing counsel had had used a pregnancy as a pretext to to stall a trial. Nice. Uh, Guys, I... Amber, your thoughts? <laughs> I feel like I need to turn off the microphone, curse a little bit, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. come back go to back, the go show. Go to the scream room for a little while. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of story you would expect to hear about a woman in, like, 1960. Sure. Like, we had those We had those now. interviews with, with women at firms who, like, they told their horror stories from the 70s. Right. Yeah. It sounds a lot like that. Right. So... Yeah. Um, what, 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 what was the case? What was the context here? So there's this Shook litigator named Paul Reed, um, and he was representing a plaintiff in a products liability trial um, against this industrial manufacturer. Um, and his the lead, account, lead opposing counsel was a woman named um, Kristen Lukart of a smaller firm, Murphy Anderson. Um, and sh- she asked to push back the scheduled trial. Um, the trial was set for August, but Lucart is pregnant. And um, she said that her doctors had warned her that that um, because of her previous pregnancy that she may go into labor significantly early and um, the August trial date might raise complications. So let's push the trial back to January to, to avoid that kind of problem. I would like to just weigh in here and say that this sounds pretty routine. I mean, Trials get moved all the time. We see that a lot in our reporting here. Right. We, we're tracking something and suddenly yeah. it's moved for various reasons. We've even on this, I think in our offbeat at some point, have joked around about um, attorneys who tried to get trials moved for like their fancy vacations yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So this seems legit to me. But so uh, it did not seem legit to Paul Reed, the Shook attorney. Um, he filed an opposition in May saying that, you know, we had waited for years for this trial. His client had been severely injured um, and suggesting <laughs> suggesting that the, that, that the pregnancy was being used to sort of push back the trial, that it was being that they wanted to push back the trial for other reasons. And, and this was sort of a, a stalling tactic. Um, perhaps more notable for the outrage that we are going to talk about in a few minutes Um uh, he compared her illness to a. He sort of suggested that it was her similar to pregnancy to an illness. Pregnancy was to an illness, right? Um, uh, <laughs> that it was that it was not the kind of compelling interest that that would allow for the delay of a trial. Um, and sort of casually suggested that that her colleagues, um, she had been the lead counsel on the case, but that her colleagues should just take over and we can go, we can move forward with it. I mean, I get that the stakes are high during stuff like this and that there is, it's true there's like gamesmanship, but like, yeah. come on, dude. Like, and what? apparently he was frustrated. It seems like it's been very contentious and I get yeah, that I'm he sure. was probably frustrated with the things that had been pushed back in the past. Yeah. But, but so, okay, so in June we went to court and things got seemingly a lot, <laughs> a lot worse. Um, Reed repeatedly tried to defend himself. Um, you know, like I said, he's, he went through everything that his client has gone through and that it's he needs to get into court. Um, and he, he tried to sort of defend the the illness stuff where he said that that was just sort of the standard that he was citing for what, what can allow for the delay of a trial. Right, right, right. right. The quote is, um, I'm not saying that pregnancy is an illness. I'm saying the factors when someone is physically unable to participate in a trial for whatever reason are enumerated in this case. Ugh. But, you know, okay. 
I feel annoyed, so I can only imagine how the actual female attorney yeah, who was having right. this lobbed in her direction felt. She was in the room, um, and so she the she got to argue her argument here, and yeah. um, it, it. So I'll just read the quote. Um, quote: He not only compares my pregnancy to an illness; he minimizes my role as lead counsel. The client chose me. I have a history of working with the client. I'm vice chair of the diversity committee in the case. Um, and that objection is not respectful in any way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to delay anything. I did not get pregnant in response to his motion to strike. Oh. That is the best line. I did not get pregnant just to have leverage in this case. Right. Um, so uh, would be so, quite a move. Gotta say. So I would I, be a move. I think sadly there are judges in in this country that may have not been receptive to this situation. Yeah, you're probably but right. um, it wasn't this judge. Uh, the judge. In that hearing, continued the trial to January as Lucart requested, um, and then um, you know I'm giving you a lot of quotes here, but there was some. I'm just I feel like it's stronger yeah, yeah, yeah. just to read. Sure, read what the judge said. Quote: I don't believe Miss Lucart got pregnant in response to this case. I do believe Miss Lucart is entitled to have some time for her to deliver her child and take care of her child before coming back to resume her duties as an attorney. I would treat all counsel the same. If a male attorney came to the court and asked for a reasonable period of time to spend with their child, I would do that as well. Um, and it was it's interesting if you go look and read the, the transcripts, he was speaking directly to the client, not to the attorney, mm-hmm. sort of to say like, this is, you know, this is why I'm ruling this way. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, We're on the level here. Well, and he said, I'm yeah. sympathetic that you've been waiting for trial. You got hurt. You are the plaintiff here. I yeah. get it. But we have to respect Okay. Well, I mean, I'm I'm glad that the judge took that view. I yeah. mean, that at least feels a little positive about right. what is kind of a gross story here. Right. But you said earlier that this all happened in June, right? Yeah. So, so it's not June now. Why are we talking about it? Yeah. So the the Daily Business Review, which is the like Miami Law Journal, um, they ran a story on um, on Tuesday about the whole situation and sort of blew it wide open. Um, above the law, quickly picked it up and really amplified things. Yeah. Um, they used the headline, which is, I'm sure, a PR person at Shook was just had a blew a gasket. But uh, big law partner accuses small firm litigator of using pregnancy to delay trial. Yeah, right. I really, mean, that is accurate gets, to the situation. Gets the point across. Yeah. Um, so uh, the next day, the other shoe dropped. The firm um, suspended Reed pending a review of the situation, and they issued a very strongly worded statement um, that quote: "We zealously advocate for our clients every day in court." but we expect our lawyers to do so in an appropriate and respectful manner. The statements made by Mr. Reed do not reflect the supportive and inclusive culture that Shook, Hardy, and Bacon is committed to championing. Um, and they they said sort of specifically that this is directly at odds with our advocacy on, on the issue, and, us as a firm. And I think we kind of got to that when you were teeing up the segment here. What are they talking about with, with, with regard to advocacy? Right. It's it. This whole situation comes at a really interesting time. Um especially because it was happening in Florida, um, there's a proposed rule being considered by the Florida Supreme Court that would take a number of steps to deal with problems like this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is creating this hard presumption that pregnant attorneys should be given a three-month continuance in mm-hmm. a situation like this. So that that would have sort of, if that was there, that would have avoided some of the ambiguity uh-huh. here. That um, would also be, I mean, that's so great to make it uh just a standard rule yeah, yeah, so yeah. that right. there isn't this there's no accusation of gamesmanship exactly. or things like that or whatever exactly. you're trying to right, do right exactly yeah. so the firm and the firm also said and as we mentioned at up top shook is a firm that has been celebrated for their exactly. uh, their approach to gender diversity and they said here that and t- to their defense they the within hours of the story breaking they they suspended the guy and said we would launch an investigation yeah. so um but they they said that they're going to use it as a 
sort of learning situation for their attorneys. And and it seems to me like looking at this, that that's sort of what it is. It's a moment that we can all sort of look at. And, you know, it's a real anecdote to go with some of the stuff that we talk about a lot on the show yeah. um, that, you know, that this idea of how you deal with implicit bias and yeah. unknowing, almost like behavior that no one intends to be, you know, maybe this guy didn't, he, he probably should have in something as egregious as this, but he didn't mean to, you know, that, I think it's really helpful to look at the fact that he sort of casually suggested that the lead attorney on the case just, you know, just hand it off to well, someone right. else. Just give it to somebody else. Right. Don't especially especially because it's an open court. Like we talk about all this weird stuff that happens within firms behind closed doors and the weird pressures that right. we face. And those are important and real. But this is extremely telling. It's a little different because they're they're opposing counsel, not colleagues. But still, I mean. But it, it just didn't register to him that that, right. that yeah. this is you, you are severely damaging a <laughs> woman by taking away a professional opportunity that that. And those are the kind of things that when they happen in the aggregate that, you know, that that's what leads to systemic imbalance. That's what leads to to the situation that we constantly sort of lament here. I thought this story was so um, sort of gross and terrible when we started talking about it. But I'm actually even pretty hopeful because it is nice in on some level to have specific examples of what we mean when we talk about yeah. this implicit right. bias. So, right. that, so that law firms can really take a look at that kind of stuff that's going on with their attorneys. Right. So I want to talk about a story that I brought, guys, um, because I always want to talk about big employment rulings. Of course. Sure. So last week, the California Supreme Court ruled that Starbucks has to pay workers for minutes they spent working before they clocked in or after they'd already clocked out. And I mean, that sounds sort of <laughs> tautological. <laughs> I was under the impression that that was what they had that to do anyway. Hang on a second. You got to pay me works. when I work? Um, <laughs> Tell yeah. me more, Amber. <laughs> so there's... Um, under federal law, there's something called the de minimis rule, okay. and that means that really small increments of time, usually just a few minutes here and there, they aren't ripe for wage and hour litigation under that rule. So the idea is if it's less than 10 minutes, the extra work is irregular, so it's not just a normal part of your shift, and it's administratively difficult to record that amount of time. Right. That's right. what I was going to say. That's yeah. probably the purpose, right? That is because, the purpose. And, and they basically say it's not worth the court's resources to sort that out. Right. Yeah. Um, you can imagine that the de minimis uh, rule came around when it used to be really hard to clock like an extra minute here or a minute sure. there. Mm -hmm. So that's why it exists. So what did the judge say here? So here, the California Supreme Court said that this guy, Douglas Troster, who was a former Starbucks worker, mm -hmm. could collect wages for time he spent when he clocked out doing stuff like he had to upload sales records to company computers and the computer made him log out before he could take that step. Oh, gotcha. He had to bring in outdoor furniture and sometimes had to like reopen a door for a worker who'd like left something inside. Yeah. So this kind of little stuff, he said, took to took four to 10 minutes every day. And so over 17 months, he said he'd worked an extra 12 hours and 50 minutes of unpaid time. And then you multiply that by all the different people who were doing it. Sure. But right. in his instant case, it was about $102.67, he said, because he was earning minimum wage at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. So the judge said he could collect that money. Okay. Why? I mean, what, yeah. why, uh, why the, the sort of shift there? Well, this one has a little bit of a circuitous procedural history. Um, it made it to the Ninth Circuit panel after a lower court said the de minimis standard meant that he couldn't do that. And then it was appealed to Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit actually asked the California High Court to weigh in because it, it implicated California state law. Okay. So what's happening here is that the California Supreme Court said wage and hour laws um, in the state have not adopted that federal de minimis standard. And they just made that really clear and it hadn't been completely cleared up before. And then the court just pointed out the obvious here that 
a few extra minutes of work really do add up, especially for these low-wage workers. Right. So the court said that that $102 roughly that this guy said he was owed is, quote, enough to pay a utility bill, buy a week of groceries, or cover a month of bus fares. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. We're about to talk in our main segment about quite a large dollar number uh, at play. And this is, like you said, like $102. It doesn't sort of jump off the page for a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that the court was taking that into account yeah, for, for minimum wage workers, especially. And California is a state where we often talk about being very worker-friendly yeah, and yeah. being on it's the, the incubator forefront. of, of, of a progressive work exactly. laws. Mm-hmm. So when you think about how the state's positioned that way, it's not entirely surprising that they would be more receptive to an argument like this from a, a, especially a minimum wage worker. Okay. Um, but this particular case, it's still going to move forward to the Ninth Circuit. Um, the Supreme Court's decision makes it clear that that federal de minimis rule doesn't apply as, in California law, mm-hmm. but we'll have to wait to see the ultimate disposition out of the Ninth Circuit. Um, our reporter, Bonnie Esslinger, talked to some lawyers about what the ruling means mm-hmm. and how that's going to turn out. And it's what you would expect, that this will probably open the gates to further lawsuits yeah. in California about this. Makes sense. And then attorneys also pointed out to her something that we circle around a lot on the Per Se podcast, which is... Some of this is really an issue of technology. That a lot of them said, you know, that's what it's I was gonna say. super easy to track really small amounts of time now right. with all sorts of timekeeping mechanisms right. that aren't hard or unusual. It's not like they have to install some new system. You know what we should do? We should just facial tracking on everybody all the time. That's yeah, a, that's a good way to fix this, right? <laughs> Biometrics. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That'll, that'll be Ooh, fine. Ooh, like a pinprick on the uh, on the on the finger. Sure, yeah, that way. Nice. You know. Yeah, we're we're going too far down the road, guys. Too far. This was a this is a, a ruling that actually is helping people, and now we're, we've shifted. Very but, good. But yeah, this is one that could potentially, uh, once we see how it plays out in California, could trickle to other states as well. Yeah. More than a dozen colleges and universities are facing lawsuits that claim they mismanaged employee retirement funds. This week, the first case to go to trial went in favor of NYU, allowing the school to avoid $350 million in potential damages. To talk to us about the whole situation this week is senior benefits reporter Emily Brill. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, thanks. So, Emily, give us the top line of what happened here. What did these NYU employees say went on with their retirement money? So it's a it was a class of about 20,000 investors in two NYU retirement funds. And they basically said that NYU made a series of bad decisions about fund management or about plan management, rather. And that caused the plans to lose a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said in the intro, it's like big, big dollar amounts we're talking about here, right? Yeah, these are both multi-billion dollar plans. And they said that they lost about like Three hundred fifty million as a result of the alleged mismanagement. So basically, the mismanagement boiled down after a couple of the claims were knocked off the suit um, to two things: one, that the plan charged um, too high of uh, fees, like record keeping fees, right. sure. to the people, and then um, that they allowed two underperforming funds or allegedly underperforming funds to stay on the plans' lineup. And NYU is not the only school that's 
faced claims like this, right? No, there's actually um, 18 other schools besides NYU facing similar suits right now. They were all hit with suits starting in the summer of 2016. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a flurry of suits with similar allegations in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I think it would be instructive, I think, to explain a little bit, uh, now that we understand what the allegations were in the suit, to explain Mm -hmm. how these funds work uh, for people who aren't as familiar with the way it works in the educational sphere. Is this just like, Mm -hmm. is this like how my 401k works? Or I mean, how does the mm-hmm. like how does the process like the the mechanics of it cool yeah totally um so it's it's somewhat similar to a 401k um it's basically a 401k for um nonprofits. it's okay. called actually a 403b um but as is often the case there are some technicalities that make it not super similar to a 401k sure. um but it's has roughly like the same format as a 401k so the yeah. way these mm-hmm. are managed would essentially be um what we would expect out of 401k we put our money in we expect mm-hmm. like the things we invest in to go well if the stock market goes up that kind of thing and it's right. but there's big plan managers that do them for these big universities right yes and um the big one um that manages um the money for a lot of these different universities is um tia it's formerly t-i-a-a cref you might have heard of it if like you watched pbs when you were growing up they used to sponsor a bunch of like public broadcasting um but so they um they're kind of like the only game in town right pretty much yeah so they um ran uh, NYU's plans and or they were one of the organizations involved in running right. it and um, yeah they they're and they're a huge money manager they have like almost a trillion dollars in assets they handle like a lot of nonprofits retirement plans um, and one of the allegations in this suit was actually that um, NYU gave too much control to TIA um, they viewed it as a quote-unquote business partner instead of like an arm's length service provider and they yeah. basically let TIA like charge whatever it wanted in fees because they had already decided that they wanted to stick with TIA I, that was an allegation I yeah. think this <laughs> actually gets into something I wanted to ask you about because mm-hmm. this was um, a bench trial right Yes, it was. And you were there for, for a good bit of this. So mm-hmm. um, some of your reporting for Law 360 said that the judge was pretty rough on NYU. And it's mm-hmm. getting into what you're saying, that they um, maybe didn't know what they were doing and ceded a lot of this to Tia. So yes. can you just tell us a little bit more about what happened during that trial? So there were um, the plaintiff side was making allegations that the people on the retirement committee that were um, making decisions for these plans um, didn't really have the financial know-how necessary to make educated decisions for the plan. Which seems sort of intrinsic um, to the job, yes? Yeah. The yeah. idea no, that absolutely. you should have some knowledge of the market or money management. I didn't know you that know. was a requirement. You're, yeah. right. You're dealing with billion-dollar funds. Don't worry about it. I did exactly. put Excel skills on my resume. <laughs> I thought that covered it. Didn't know anyone would ask about so, it. Like, anyway. How yeah. bad were they? Well, the judge actually said something very similar to what you just said. Like she said, um, one, at one point there was a back and forth between, this is all during closing arguments, there was a back and forth between um, the defense counsel and the judge where um, the defense counsel was talking about not knowing the difference between these two types of plans, very niche plans that not a lot of people know about. And the attorney kind of in like a light tone said, well, you know, Your Honor, not a lot of people know about these plans. And the judge was like, yeah, but these are like billion dollar accounts. Like they need to know. Right. Um, and <laughs> that yeah, does seem fair. Totally. No, yeah. it, it does. Yeah. And um, 
something that she mentioned was that she was very surprised about how some of the committee members answered questions and depositions because, in her words, quote, it left open to question as to whether they were fulfilling their responsibilities. Then she said, as a judge listening to this, some of this has been very surprising. It sounds to me like they had no idea. That's the way it came across. Wow, Wow. that's that's pretty heavy for a judge because she's really walking right up to the line of like, these people can't do this job. Right. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's really close to that. As we know sometimes it's a dangerous game to try to predict what judges are going to do. And, and ultimately, all this this sort of critical language from the judge, the ruling didn't, didn't go the way it might have seemed, right? No, it didn't. Because on Tuesday, um, the judge issued her ruling, and it was in favor of NYU. Um, so all the criticism mm-hmm. aside, NYU still won. And what yes. did she, and what did she mm-hmm. say? Yeah, like, why? you know, explain, mm-hmm. explain to us, explain in sort of layman's terms, like, because it seems like, it seems like she found lots of things they did wrong. Yes. So, um, but the bigger question was whether or not they had um, what's called like a prudent process in place mm-hmm. for um, like for managing the plan, okay. basically. Yeah. So even though some individual members of the committee um, didn't necessarily have the bona fides, uh, allegedly, um, they as a whole were able to ask the right questions and um, do the right things. Like they issued two RFPs for better record keepers and whatnot. And she found that um, overall, when you kind of zoom back and look at the bigger picture, um, they were doing something right. So there might have yeah. been some not great people in place, but the 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 process overall was as it should be basically yes yeah so we talked to we talked a bunch throughout this that there are these other cases um, where does this stand like where are we timing wise with the other cases and with the, where does this sort of fall in that context right so this is an interesting one because this is the first one of these university ERISA suits to go to trial right um, it was a bench trial eight days. Um, Two of these other suits have been dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage. Um, one is um, on appeal in the Third Circuit, and the other one is like about to be appealed to the Seventh Circuit. The plaintiff's attorney has indicated that he's going to. Um, and uh, another one of these cases settled. So, so far, none of these cases have been found in favor of the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 15 more cases out there that are still at the district court level. So there's a lot of these. Um, what were attorneys saying is like the takeaway that if some of these workers at universities want to push and try to win, what can they learn from this loss to do differently? So attorneys were telling me yesterday that um, it would be in um, the workers' best interest to get experts who are familiar with the specific type of plans um, that the universities use here. So these 403B plans. Mm -hmm. So if an expert is um, extremely knowledgeable about 401k plans, that's not necessarily going to help him or her in this case mm-hmm. because they need to know about 403B plans. So the judge um, in her ruling um, spent a lot of time talking about the experts and um, really lavished a lot of praise on the experts that NYU used and um, had some kind of less than flattering things to say about the plaintiff's experts, mm-hmm. basically saying that they didn't really know what they were talking about either. I think this makes a lot of sense because it's such a complicated area of but it's where law meets finance, essentially. Mm-hmm. It gets really tricky. So, yeah, it seems like the better your expert, the better your chances of prevailing would be. Definitely, yeah. A lot of these cases turn on the expert's um, testimony because the stuff is so hard to understand. So the judges aren't coming in with a lot of knowledge about the ins and outs of these particular 
plans. So they need to learn that from the experts. So if the experts aren't um, credible, then that's kind of going to determine what happens in the case. And what happens now with this one? I assume we're going to go to the Second Circuit? Yes, yes. Um, The plaintiff's attorney told me that he does plan to appeal, so it's probably going to be in the Second Circuit Emily, I'm glad we had a very understandable expert to walk us through this case. Thanks (laughs) for coming on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Some weeks we really struggle to come up with what is going to be in our offbeat segment. And then other weeks we have a bounty of choices. And I think that's what we have this week. Yeah. Uh, the first thing, we, we, we have two to talk about today. The first one, I just want to talk really quick. We just couldn't not talk about this thing that happened in, in, uh, in the Southern District of New York this week. Uh, there's a, there's a, biote- a former biotech CEO named Patrick Maraca, and he mm-hmm. is on trial in New York right now for basically, it was like an investment fraud scam. He's, he, he, he took money that investors gave to his company and spent it on things like rent, cigars. Maracas. His, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> uh, uh, his fiance's restaurant. So he's got a lot of problems. It's a Moroccan restaurant. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, look at you. I know. Uh, so he's facing all kinds of fraud claims and things like that. And his lawyer, his own lawyer, uh, is employing the always creative uh, strategy uh, that we see at play sometimes. This is from Pete Brush's story, who was in the, who was in court this week. Uh, But Maraca's lawyer, Bennett M. Epstein, told the jury his client was serious about the fight against cancer despite his business foibles, which included him trying to run his companies from the caboose of a railroad-themed restaurant. As you do. Maraca is, here are the quotes, a brilliant diagnostic technician, but a total moron for not keeping proper accounting records, Epstein said. This is his own lawyer, mind you. He told this to the jury. Uh, so that's very funny. We saw that in I the Shkreli it. case. Like, yeah. the, the lawyer, I, love, I love the tactic of like, this... of like, I don't like him. No one should like him. <laughs> but does not liking him mean, mean he broke the law? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I feel yeah. like it's a trend now. I feel like it's just like, yeah, this guy's the worst. Yes. But legally. I punched him in the still... face right before I came in here. We put some put some makeup on. You can't tell. I struck him. But but that's not here nor there. So that's so that's going on in New York. Um, the, other really th- the other really interesting thing uh, that popped up is, you know, there I was on Twitter and the official Law 360 account brings up a poll and it says, how do you pronounce gerrymandering? Uh, gerrymandering. With the I'm going to so- go with gerrymandering. With the, so- <laughs> <laughs> with the soft G or the hard G. And then you have to, in your head, think like, what's the hard G way? Gerrymandering. Uh. And I was, I, I, we, I did some reading to see how Outrageous. we would just, how we would ask such a question. Gerrymandering won in the informal poll in a landslide. Um, but I wonder know, if the district of that poll had been yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, so no, nobody here thinks that it should be pronounced gerrymandering, but you know who does think that? The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. Wow, what? is it? No, it's John Robert, right? <laughs> it's a soft T. Yes. Um, so that came to light uh, this uh, this week. Uh, an, it was a report originally by the Boston Globe. We wrote about it. But basically, a little history lesson here. The term uh, gets its name from 19th century politician Elbridge Gerry. Now, he was... I see where we're going Now, he was James Madison's vice president, and he was a governor of Massachusetts. And one of his signature political achievements was signing a bill that basically redrew state Senate territories to provide a political advantage. I remember this from history class. Is that like the salamander-y looking thing? It was drawn... It was drawn... 
uh, by a political cartoonist the new map, the new section uh-huh. of the map, and it looked it like was Gary's Mander. It looked like a salamander. Right. And then he said, This is the Gary Mander. Got it. Over time, of course. Would the- you say that they're applying a strict <laughs> sort of constructionist approach to phonetics? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We definitely don't, we don't do. have yeah. to get yeah. Is this the new GIF GIF? Well, is that what's mm, happening here? Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, it's it also is an unfortunate it's, yeah, discussion. It's it's an offshoot of that, obviously. So anyway, this 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 came to light because uh, Gary. It's hard to even read his name and not say Jerry because right. I say Jerry Mandering. Gary's hometown is a is a place called Marblehead, Massachusetts, and it the, the township itself actually sent a letter to the Supreme Court saying, "Hey, listen." You're hearing these these gerrymandering cases, and you're saying it wrong. Would you consider uh, changing your pronunciation? That town That's needs amazing. a few more problems. Yeah, uh, they've got too much time on their hands it for legislating. Began, it, it, it actually began. This is in this is in our story and in the Globe story. It began. A resident of Marblehead is actually the grandmother of uh, John Mulaney, the comedian. Oh, oh sure, and she, and, and she had Love encouraged him to go on late night with Seth Meyers and 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 correct the record on gerrymandering. <laughs> that didn't take root, so she wrote to John Roberts about it. Anyway, she was like, I couldn't get my famous son to grandson right. to do it, so I'm, I'm going to write go a letter. His head. <laughs> anyway, uh, an emissary counselor for Roberts uh, basically wrote back and said the judge agreed. Uh, basically, the, 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 the judge said, yeah, you know what? You're right. I've I've surveyed the historical record. But the liberal wing of the court, they're they're in favor we'll of expansion. Ex- you know, the, the well, phonetics are a living, breathing thing. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to get into They grow over time. Prescriptivism we'll, we'll and prescriptivism. if he puts his money where his mouth is next time they take up a case right. on this issue well, and how he pronounces it in oral arguments. The stakes were already high for Jerry gerrymandering cases. Right. Political, p- politically, and now we have something extra to watch when one comes up again to see if Roberts or anybody else uh, adopts this pronunciation. I wonder how Thomas will pronounce it. <laughs> oh, what we'll a guy. We'll never know. <laughs> Thanks for that show today, guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Emily Brill. Contributing reporters, RJ Vote, Bonnie Esslinger, Dave Simpson, and Pete Brush. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Mint. If you'd like to know more about anything you heard on today's show, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and help other people find the show. Thanks, and join us again next week.